Welcome to Journal Spotting. Are you well aware of the health risks to adults from air pollution, but want to know more about the risks to pregnant women and their unborn children? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that brings you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. This is The Climate Zone. Welcome back, Climate Zone listeners. There has been a lot going on since our last climate episode. I mean, so much. I mean, for instance, like right now, delegates are meeting in New York for the UN Ocean Treaty with a a general aim of protecting 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. Now, this seems both ambitious, but also may not even be enough. And, like, like always, the talks appear to be both positive and very frustrating. A bit like in the cops, some countries are refusing to compromise, whilst the wealthier nations are extremely resistant to promising the money and you know, getting the money where it is sorely needed. Watch this space though, listeners. By the time this podcast has been released, we hopefully will have some more promising news. So let's see. So what else? Oh, well, lots going on. Um, in other groundbreaking news, for the first time, I had to organise my son's fifth birthday party. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, overall, it went well. There were only two, well, yeah, maybe, maybe three. Uh, three, not including younger siblings who came along. Of course, of course. Um, so yes, let's call it three of his little buddies cried at the end or even during the past the parcel and I only forgot to send the invite to just one of his very best friends which you know being a glass half full kind of guy maybe slightly in denial um not a bad first attempt and listeners I will let you know if that's also my last attempt so again watch this space you may have realized guys that it's a once again, it's just me, Dr. Barney Hirons, um, hosting tonight's show. LJ decided to jet off to Australia for three weeks. Yeah, I should add, this is her one and only flight saved up over a number of years. Um, and I'm not at all jealous because Australia is no fun whatsoever. Um, it's actually amazing. So make sure you go at some point in your life. And John, well, John messaged me to send his apologies, but that he's got a med reg rave tonight. Hmm. That sounds fun and a little bit geeky, so I'm all in favour. Oh, (laughs) okay, reading that again. He's actually got the med reg rage on nights. That sounds more like the Jonathan Hudson we know. But fear not, listeners. Before you quickly press pause and dive into your Spotify Happy Place playlist, Tonight, you will not hear much from me, but you will hear a lot from the brilliant Professor Kathy Thornton. Prof Thornton is a professor of human immunology with a specialist interest in the antenatal determinants of health in childhood. She started by mainly focusing on immunology before branching out into the fascinating, but well, frankly, a, a little bit terrifying effects of air pollution on fetuses. Now, this is quite a a wide-ranging discussion in which we cover key facts about air pollution, how it affects both adults and fetuses, the most common problems we might see in children as they grow older, what is more important, indoor or outdoor pollution, why this is totally relevant to adult medicine, and importantly, what we need to do to improve the situation. But enough from me. Let's hear it all from her. Kathy, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. And as usual, before we sort of get on with the main interview, before we get on with, you know, get into the, sort of the nitty gritty of the detail, um, I'd like to b- begin with some quick fire questions. And you know, this idea is for the audience, they'll, they'll get a bit of a taste about what we're going to be discussing later. And we can obviously expand on the details as we go along. Does that sound yeah, okay? That's fine, Barney. Thanks. Wonderful. Great. So your first quick fire question is air pollution dangerous during pregnancy 
essentially, yes, I guess anything that has a potentially detrimental effect on the health outcome of either the mother or the fetus would be considered dangerous in pregnancy. So there are caveats, but yes. All right. Brilliant. Well, not so brilliant, but anyway, thank you. <laughs> pretty, pretty good answer. Yeah. <laughs> what is the most common, what, say, what are the most common problems that we might see either in pregnancy or in the fetus? So most of our understanding is in pregnancy. So relating to preterm birth, so babies born prematurely before 37 weeks of gestation or babies that are carried to full term. So the full 37 plus weeks of gestation and then a low birth weight. So they just haven't grown as well as they would be expected to based on all the evidence we have about what size babies should be in a given population. What do you think is the biggest risk factor in terms of pollutants? That's a really tricky one to do. Yeah, sure. Um, I would have said, I'd I'd say PM 2.5, so particulate matter where it's less than 2.5 micron in diameter, primarily because we know the most about it. We monitor it the closest. Lots of our studies look at the associations with, but maybe smaller particulates, some of the gases and other chemicals in our air are also problematic. We just don't have the same level of understanding. Great. Yeah. And that sounds very similar for pretty much any study on air pollution. It's extremely difficult to get down to the bottom of exactly what it is. But okay, PM 2.5 seems to be the most indicated. And what do you think is the most significant source of this? I mean, and that's probably the same for all PM 2.5, but is it specifically any sources for pregnant women, which you know about? So we um, we focused on the outdoor environment for a long time, that classic scene of cars and factories belching and bellowing gases and smoke and the particulates came, contained within that. But much of our interest now is on the indoor environment and the fact that these are generated in our homes. And most of us spend 90% plus time in our homes, and that may be more so in the latter stages of pregnancy and the early period after having a baby, especially if it's winter time, for right. example. So uh, the indoor home, indoor home particularly, is becoming of particular importance. That's really interesting. Okay, and actually, I, I can see now the, how that's relevant in pregnancy as well, because people are less likely to go out, perhaps. Fascinating. What is the most critical step that we as healthcare professionals can do to perhaps improve the outcomes or improve the air quality for our pregnant patients? I think the key thing is to give people simple measures they can implement in their homes that aren't going to be particularly costly. You know, a little bit like we saw with COVID-19, keeping rooms well-aired and ventilated, thinking about the vacuuming, thinking about preventing condensation and, you know, if there's any leaks or if you're going to dry your clothes on a clothes horse, do it in a well-ventilated room. And some simple other things about changing from spray household cleaning products to something that is solid or liquid so you don't generate those aerosols so and we can again pick up on some of these as we go through yeah brilliant okay that's a wealth of good advice right there fantastic um and out of 10 how optimistic are you that we can improve the air quality um to reduce or stop the risk for pregnant patients on a good day i'd be about a six out of ten i try okay. I want to be more optimistic <laughs> realistically about a six out of ten okay all right, we'll, we'll, we'll stay optimistic. Six out of 10, brilliant. Thanks, Kathy. Excellent. That really, really good, really good starter, a primer for what we're going to discuss, which is wonderful. And give, as you say, give, a, give our audience a good taste of what, what's coming. Right. Now, we're actually going to go back away from the sort of the air pollution, the pregnant ladies, and we want to hear a little bit about you. So, um, as I say, I, I I was reading up a bit about you. I saw that you you started your your studies in in Tasmania, and I, you know, I I love to talk about Tasmania. I've been there once. Wonderful. So, how about you you start there? Tell us how was it studying Tasmania, and and then move on to how you got into this area of air pollution and pregnancy. Yes, I did. I guess I started my science career in Tasmania. I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Tasmania. Um, many moons ago now, I did biochemistry with microbiology and immunology. So I'm a scientist rather than a clinician. Um, and after that, I progressed to doing a PhD. So I moved from Tasmania to South Australia and I did my PhD at Flinders University in Adelaide. And I was doing my PhD on reproductive immunology. So already interested in pregnancy and what was going on in preterm birth in particular, some of the sort of responses, the placenta and other tissues that the just at the sort of gestational fetal interface were making, uh, and then I went to a presentation by one professor, Sir Stephen Holgate, uh, about month four of my PhD, and he was talking about the work being done in Southampton here in the UK, in the context of early life origins of disease, 
fetal programming of disease because David Barker, who is kind of the grandfather of that discipline, uh, was based in Southampton and they were doing more work within Stephen's group on respiratory disease. And that kind of really piqued my interest. And then when I finished my PhD, I uh, had the opportunity on a National Health and Medical Research Council fellowship to go to Southampton and, and work, not in Stephen's group in the end, but in, a, in the child health group led by Professor John Warner. And I've kind of worked then in moving into that sort of early life origins, fetal programming space at that time. And then I've just progressed that, leaving Southampton for a while, going back to the, I think it's now called the Telethon Kids Institute in Perth in Western Australia. Again, working in this space of early life origins of disease, uh, very much from an immune system perspective. Coming back to Southampton and then finding my way to Swansea and sort of building all the time on my interests in sort of antenatal determinants of child health and those fetal programming phenomena. And then finding myself more and more interested in those environments that pregnant women are exposed to. So infectious disease has been a, a key one, whether the mother has allergy, whether the mother has obesity, whether the mother develops gestational diabetes, um, but increasingly interested in in air pollution, perhaps because on my ride to work in the mornings on my bicycle, I look across at the Port Talbot Steelworks and can see the, the belching and bellowing of uh, the air pollution. Um, and so that led to opportunities here in Swansea, where I'm now Professor of Human Immunology and also head of the medical school, which takes up a bit of time. <laughs> and then we've been recently fortunate to get one of the Clean Air Programs Consortia projects that uh, is led from Swansea and is working with all four partner uh, countries of the UK. Wow. Sounds like a fascinating career. Back and forth to Australia. Yeah, Wonderful. Though. <laughs> I try to do it too often. So let's let's go on to it then. Let's have a think about, uh, well, we, we will talk obviously about offspring, which I think is where a lot of the focus is. But what do we know about uh, the risk to pregnant women in particular? We've we've covered a lot about sort of the, you know, the effects of air pollution on general health and cardiovascular respiratory. But what is the effect on pregnant women themselves? So you mean in terms of the potential outcomes of their pregnancy or the response they're going to make to the pollutants? Yeah, well, I suppose both, really. So, um, I mean, obviously, we we will talk about sort of the the, you know, the preterm and the sort of low gestational weight. But um, I, I was hearing about the effects on pregnant women themselves, um, um, things which we often think about preeclampsia or hypertension, these sorts of things. Do we see that as well? Yeah, so we see that, uh, I mean, as, as I sort of mentioned in the quick fire response there, that the key things that people have studied are those parameters like preterm birth and low, ter low birth weight at term. Um, you know, these are parameters that are collected through all pregnancies. We collect information about what gestation the baby is delivered at. We collect information about what weight the baby is at whatever point it's delivered. So that information is routinely gathered. And so some of the early outcomes and, and the more robust and frequent observations relate to those measures of those pregnancy outcomes. So some of those preterm births will relate to preeclampsia, but they do tend to be uh, lumped into one preterm birth outcome uh, measure on the whole. But we think about 40% of preterm births on the planet are attributable to, to air pollution, particularly PM 2.5. It's much, you know, the burden is much greater in a low middle income country as we might expect. And if we think about the fact there are something like 15 million babies born prematurely every year, that's, you know, quick math, six million of those babies are potentially, you know, delivered preterm as a consequence of some kind of interaction of the mother with air pollution. And then we have that association with the term low birth weight, which we think is about, I think it's about 15% of deliveries. So I think it's about 20 million babies are born low uh, term, low birth weight. Um, and we think, you know, a good number of those are associated with uh, the air pollution exposures of their mother and this is important because of those global mortality at less than five years of age in children are, you know about a third of them are attributed to preterm birth and being a, a term I can never say low low ter, low birth weight at term baby I'm using yeah experience <laughs> of it I usually write the abbreviation not the not say it out absolutely actually I think people do just say the abbreviation don't they after a while that's fine so but, I mean the they are they are huge statistics, and I think that you, the the headline recently, well, in the last, fairly recently, was this forty percent is it of preterm births attributable to PM two point five. So I suppose we could focus on that for firstly, Kathy, because um, it's very it's very difficult. I suppose the word is attributable. I suppose, isn't it? So what does that what does that actually mean? I mean, how do we know that it is PM two point five and not one of the other million factors which could be involved yeah i mean most of the study it reflects the fact that 
as we said, there's a lot of monitoring of air pollution these days and a lot of monitoring of PM 2.5. So there's a lot of data about PM 2.5 that we don't have about lots of other air pollutants, for example. Um, but most of them are by association. They look at regions of a particular country where the accumulation of the air pollutants are and where you see those increasing rates of preterm birth. There's a really nice study in the United States. We don't get anywhere near 40% attributable to air pollution in a country like the United States, but they've got really nice maps across the country where you know populations are well socio-demographically matched across the country. And they look at preterm birth rates and the air pollution levels in those environments and show those associations. I think, you know, we've got a lot of steps to go to that, you know, really linking the causative element of the air pollutants to those outcomes. But there's lots of evidence of impacts of pollutants on gestation associated tissue. So the placenta is the classic one people use. So you can take placentas from women who live in different air pollution burdens and see differences that you would attribute to the air pollutants because you've shown in your sort of laboratory experiments that that's what the air pollutants would do to the placenta. So we've kind of got that gathering of little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that, you know, coming together to show that we're moving from that attributable association relationship through to causative as well. Yeah, and that sounds, again, like all sorts of air pollution studies, it's very difficult to get that causative thing. But it sounds like you've got the in vitro evidence, you've got the big observational evidence, um, and they're doing their best to account for the other factors which could be. Um, because the obvious ones, of course, are things like socioeconomic status, ethnicity, which is may, you know, mainly related to you know, socioeconomic status, um, smoking, these sorts of things, which, of course, are, are going to be higher in these inner city areas which have more pollution. Um, so you can see when it's difficult. But in your view you feel this is fairly robust that you know these this 40 percent figure you think around the world you think that's fairly robust i think so as long as you consider it from a global perspective it's not going to be 40 percent in the united kingdom and the united states it's that balance across those you know all of the countries across the planet and it's going to be variable by you know region even within those countries as well yeah great okay so um to preterm birth you know low birth weight um we most of the people who listen to this will be adult doctors or doctors who care for adults, probably all adults as well. Most likely, who you never know. Maybe some of my my daughter's nursery kids will listen to it. Um, but what does that mean? And I mean, you know, what what outcomes, what adverse outcomes does that mean for the child if they are born early, if they are born low weight, that sort of thing? What actually, what implications does that have? Yeah, so we know that both of these are associated with chronic physical and neurological disability, which has a huge impact on long-term health. Those World Health Organization statistics around uh, global child mortality in the under fives, I think it's about 30% are attributable to low birth weight and 30% are attributable to preterm birth. So they account for a fair chunk of that global burden on the health of our children up to the age of five. Um but we also think there are other effects of these pollution exposures, which may not which may not only manifest in those children who are preterm or low birth weight. You know, we think there are other things going on related to sort of autism spectrum disorder, maybe mood, reflecting impact on fetal brain development, maybe, you know, obviously effects on respiratory tract as well. Huge interest in impacts of these exposures on lung development and respiratory health as we get older as well, not just in childhood, but eventually into adulthood as well. And studies looking at the association with even adult diseases, you know, cardiovascular stroke, diabetes, all the sort of big NCDs that are, you know, the thing that most of us are going to die from. They are attributable to the low birth weight or to the air pollution as a in you know, um, in pregnancy or It'll be both. is it so not really sure? Them, yeah, yeah. So some of them will be would be accounted for by that preterm birth uh, affected response in association with air pollution, but more generally, yeah. air pollution is thought to be associated with these poorer health outcomes as well. I see. Yeah, very complicated, it, but actually, it seems to be a very wide, broad um, potential dangers for these children and, and long term as well. So we'll be seeing as as adult physicians, we'll be seeing these people who have been brought up because of these problems yeah. as a child. And mm. it gets it gets a bit trickier as you get older and older, because mm. of course we talk about those exposures in pregnancy, but they're going to be the exposures the child has the minute the child is born and through its first yeah. few years of life. It shares its exposures with its mother, whether it's, you know, a fetus or living in the house as a an infant. Um so it's very hard to tease apart the, you know, the direct effects in the pregnancy versus those that may be occurring in the 
the early years of childhood as well. Yeah, very difficult. Have they? I mean, just out of interest, I haven't seen. Have they any twin studies? These sorts of things. These are often how they try to piece apart these complex conundrums. But it's even a, this it's might bit, be too hard for that. It's a bit tricky because they will have had to be separated a bit. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and in totally different areas and things, so the numbers would be very small. Okay, fascinating. Um, you've mentioned lots of the ones that which I was, I was going to ask about. I was thinking about childhood cancers as well. Do we know much about that? Is that a risk? There are some associations of that as well. But um, again, it's that, you know, drilling down into what the causative elements of that are. And there's often, you know, for some of these diseases, I think especially in the setting of cancer, they think about almost like a two-hit approach. You know, the that exposure during the pregnancy shapes some element of cell or tissue function. And then some event postnatally kind of sort of further indoctrinates that, you know, inadequate response of the tissue. And then that would then be the thing that leads on to, to developing the cancer. Yeah, no, I've got you. Great. OK. And I was wondering if you could, without, you know, big pictures and big graphs, try to talk us through what you know the PM 2.5 does perhaps to the placenta and how that sort of, I mean, I know there'll be a a lot of unknowns and a wide variety of possible effects. But could you roughly talk us through how that how that works? Yeah, so in terms of the kind of more associative studies where they've looked at a woman's sort of global exposures and then looked at what's going on in the placenta, we've seen lots of things going on in the placenta, such as epigenetic changes. So the regulation of the expression of different genes is affected by those exposures. And that might explain why we see lots of different associations with different outcomes related to the same kinds of exposures, because maybe the different genes have been switched on and off in the placenta of different women due to other, you know, intersectionalities with, you know, socioeconomic status, diet, and all of those kinds of things. We see damage to the mitochondria in the placenta. And so, of course, that will affect that uh, sort of the energy production of the placenta. And that may be some of the parameters that particularly affect the growth of the of the baby because the placenta is not providing all of the nutrients and other mediators that would support the development of different organs and the overall growth of the baby. We see a really inflammatory response in the placenta. So they'll be producing all kinds of inflammatory mediators, which then pass across to the baby. And then we see a lot of oxidative stress in the placenta. So the placenta is clearly under some kind of stress. And the relative balance of these is going to depend on you know, a whole host of different factors by the time it gets to the placenta. In terms of the PM2.5 itself, um, the way that it would signal through to the placenta. So PM2.5 is quite large and probably not going to get to the placenta, whereas PM1 we think probably does. The, the smaller it gets, the more likely it is to get there. But, you know, the mother breathes it in, respiratory tract response. She's going to swallow it. She's been exposed to it on her skin. She's making a local response to it as well. And some of these mediators are then, you know, traveling through her circulation, acting on the placenta and inducing those effects that I've described. Or in some instances, those very small particles are going to be able to get to the placenta. And we've seen them in placentas. We've seen them in fetal tissues. So you can actually get through the placenta, get to the fetal tissues where they're going to induce those same kind of responses. That oxidative stress, very inflammatory, DNA damaging, DNA expression changing, mitochondrial disruption type of phenotype. And do we have an idea about how, and maybe this is a silly question, but how big particles or small they will need to be to be able to pass through the placenta? We think it's the less than PM ones, so less okay. than micron, probably even smaller than that. I'm trying to remember the studies. I've probably got them open in the background. I don't think they've ever, they must have sized the particles, but they are less than one micron uh, getting okay. through to that. And so that comes back to that sort of monitor. We do lots of monitoring of PM 2.5s. We don't do as much monitoring of PM ones because it's historically harder and, you know, we're pushing in that direction. Hmm. But we don't have, you know, like Swansea City Council here doesn't do global monitoring of PM1s, but they do have PM2.5. And that would apply in lots of spaces. And so we've seen lots of studies now, I say lots, there's a few studies now that show these sort of black carbon particulates in the placenta. Nice study in Brussels where they show that, the you know, the higher your residential exposure, the more you will have in your placenta. So, so indicating that it is causative due to the burden you have in your environment. Um, and then another nice study comparing Thailand and, and London. You know, we think London pollution is bad, but Bangkok is worse, and you can see the difference in their placentas. So okay. it's those very small particulates that are getting through. And just uh, if, for our listeners, so um, and for myself as well, um, PM, PM 2.5, PM 1, PM 10, they all sort of, they all kind of correlate and they all seem to be roughly, you know, you have similar um, sources, but um, are there particular sources which these really small PM 1s 
um, come from, which are different from, say, combustion of fuels and that sort of thing, which is where we see most of PM2.5? They come from, they have a similar origins. I think we just need to start thinking about those indoor origins of them as well. When you're cooking on your gas hot, any hot, when you're frying your bacon, those kinds of, these are generating particulates all the time. And there'll be PM2.5, there'll be PM10 as well, but there'll be PM2.5, there'll be PM1. There's volatile organic compounds, which we haven't talked about, and various other gases. So these are, again, you know, we think about the, the burning of fuels in a combustion engine, but sort of cooking in the home will generate these as well. Um, wood burning stoves in your home will generate these as well. So these are those kind of household exposures where you'll be getting those pm2.5s those pm1s and so they're both and they're both made yeah i think i think it's fascinating the idea of indoor pollution some somehow it is not as well sort of thought of or, or thought about and um i've got this one of the i bought one for christmas a, a little a pollution monitor it gives you pm1 pm1 2.5 10 it's just really interesting and it is fascinating how as soon as you put the hob on as soon as you cook anything especially any sort of frying thing um the numbers shoot up to you know, drastically high levels and i guess you know, for, for most people, that's for a short period of time and not all day. But um, yeah, if, you, if you're in that environment all day long, if you're cooking all day long, if that's your professional, actually, that's just your, your culture to cook um, for long, long periods of time. You can see how your exposure to these indoors would go up yeah. remarkably. And we have this debate when we're wanting to do indoor monitoring in homes about where in the homes do you put the monitors because you want them in the kitchen because of that burden, but you're just going to mm. see peaks and troughs over the course of the day when someone has made toast and someone has cooked dinner and it becomes a little bit hard to interpret then. Oh, yeah, they were cooking, yeah. and but we know that. We could just monitor, you could just have a diary and tell us that you were cooking and we would have a good idea of your exposures. So. Yeah, that's very complicated. Okay, we'll have to think about what we, you know, what we might be able to do about that um okay so we we know that sort of we, about the outdoor pollutions the burning of the fossil fuels the sort of the pollution the all these sorts of things we know about indoor and you've mentioned vocs a couple of times that's something we haven't really discussed much on the on the podcast and what are vocs where do they come from and what do we know about them and their risk so vocs are volatile organic compounds and sort of just essentially chemicals and we just find them in all kinds of products in our homes we'll find them in our soft furnishings We'll find them in our clothing. We know that clothing manufacturers often treat our clothings with chemicals so that they are nice and saleable to us. Um, lots of cleaning products, as I said, you know, when you spray your, I don't want to name any brand names, you spray your cleaning product, that spray that comes out, that, that lemon smell would be a volatile organic compound. Um, and so there's lots of these in our homes as a consequence of our behaviours in our homes, particularly related to cleaning, painting, DIY, our soft furnishings and our clothing. And, and what do we know about them as far as are they risky because um, these are chemicals which are in products and, you know, unlikely to have gone through extensive testing. Um, but do we know which ones are safe and which ones not? Or do we do we club them all together as VOCs? And There's a lot of data showing which are the most abundant in our homes. So we know things like butane and acetone and the ethanol as well. And um, these and toluene, these are very abundant in our homes. Um and we know that these have uh, effects on, you know, toxicological effects on cells, toxicological effects on tissues. They have some associations with disease. We've just never really had a good understanding of the burden of them we have in our homes. And I don't think we've still got to the point of understanding how that burden in our homes relates to their health impacts upon us. You know, we're trying to do some work at the moment, translating the household burden into something we can use in an experiment. And that's proving quite challenging. Um, so how do we then extrapolate that to its health effects on us? But we do know there are associations with the disease. We have animal models where we can take these compounds um, and show that they have detrimental effects on the, the health outcomes in our animal models. And so we do know they have ill effects. We just don't really understand them to the same extent that we do the particulates at this stage. Fair enough. And and with the um, with the topic at hand, do we know much about them in pregnancy or yeah, young young children or anything like that? It's a fabulous question. Um, the short answer is no. But I think one mm. thing we really need to understand is that as we progress through these efforts to try and really understand their health impacts through you know some of our in vitro models, animal models, we need to make sure that we include models that are relevant to pregnancy and early childhood. Most of our work is done on adults personal track their immune system the cardiovascular system need i go on changes and we've never really taken into account that the interaction of a pregnant woman with these environmental factors might actually be different to when she was not pregnant 
when she was in the first trimester, when she was in the third trimester and so on. So, you know, that's one of the things we're really trying. I mean, that's my personal interest is trying to get to the bottom of how the pregnant women are responding to these differently. And those signals that they might then be sending to the placenta are going to be a little bit different again because of the fact that it's coming from a, the respiratory tract of a pregnant woman, not just a, a non-pregnant woman or a, or a man. And I think the same applies to early childhood as well. And I do want to ask you about trimesters and things, but before we go there, um, I was wondering more broadly which which populations, um, and that may be geographical or um, sort of you know, city versus urban or you know countryside things, which populations are most at risk, which we know of um, for you know, in pregnancy with the pollution. I think the ones we're most concerned about are our inner city, more, you know, most deprived populations where the housing stock may be, you know, may be less than ideal. The outdoor environment would be less than ideal because of the, you know, the cheaper housing in the more polluted places and things like that. And then we see that, again, that intersectionality then with, you know, poor diet potentially, maybe more, maybe more obesity, more comorbidities um, and so on. So they're the populations, but they're also the populations that are the hardest to get engaged in in these studies. So huge efforts being made in trying to make sure that the, you know, the, the women and their families engaging in these studies are you know, representative of all aspects of society. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And as far as geographically as um, in other countries, um, you've mentioned the, the low to middle, middle income countries are the worst affected. Um, and I, I, I suspect there's fairly obvious reasons why that is. Yeah, again, it's because, you know, they all have different regulations relating to air quality for us, for example, and, and different local industry, different housing stock, uh, different age of the cars and the sort of interventions that are being put in place for minimising the pollution coming from cars, all those kinds of government regulations, policies, practices, and then local policies and practices would be just different to ours and, you know, not address some of the the air pollution related shortcomings that you know a high income country can afford to in, in, engage with and they, and they all add up i'm sure and we and to what extent it's very difficult to piece apart okay um and i just wanted to ask about one particular thing which was uh, microplastics i'm not sure of you uh, how much uh, <laughs> how much of your research has been related to that but we did a talk well we've had a couple of conversations recently one about ocean health and one we had with uh, barbara melcher who studies microplastics and in, in the airways and things mm. um we've had you know it's it's a sort of fascinating but slightly terrifying area so i wanted to if you had any sort of weighing on this in pregnant patients? Yeah, so there's now some studies showing microplastics in the placenta. There are studies showing microplastics in fetal tissues. Uh, it's not surprising. They're, I mean, in realistic, realistically, they're going to be nanoplastics given the size they need to be to get, as we discussed with the micro, uh, the particular matter, they do need to be small enough to you know, translocate across the airways or the gut and make their way through the circulation and down to the placenta. But there's not a lot then done on the biological impact of them as well. We're doing some stuff in my group. Uh, we're trying to do a little bit of work on the placenta. You can see the, the macrophages, which are a key immune defense population in the placenta, just love them and chop them all up. And it does have quite a dramatic effect on the function of the cells. And um, we're just trying to tease apart that now. We're trying to do some work with sort of our colleagues in bioscience who work on it from an environmental oceanographic perspective and uh, try and understand that. And again, I think it's important to think about those, uh, the differences in response, again, of a pregnant woman. But I'm sort of fascinated in finding out about the the skin responses of children versus adults at the moment. Because if you think about when you're at the beach, we know microplastics, are, the sand is full of microplastics. And when you go to the beach, you or I would probably put the towel down, sit down, and yes, we'd come home with sand in all kinds of places, but it'd be mm. nothing like a small child who has rolled around in the sand and, um, you know, has just spent their day basically on the sand in a way that we don't as adults. So we're really interested in seeing if there are differences in maybe how the skin of a small child might respond to microplastics versus the skin of us as adults. And again, this potential difference in different populations, which may impact on the the health consequences for these exposures. But even the animal models in microplastics and pregnancy are not very far advanced as well. There's a, a few suggesting some effects on the liver, but they're not really robust at this stage. Okay, that's really interesting. I, I instantly got images of my children just like shoveling sand in their mouth and you're like, ah. Oh. Yeah, and you know, we, I mean, you will be familiar, we know lots of our food is full of microplastics, not just our water, but you know, our honey and our salt and our <laughs> have lots of microplastics that we're ingesting inhaling all the time and obviously our skin exposures as well so yeah. yeah and all of that was going to have 
some reaction and it's difficult to know how serious it is, but it's going to have some reaction. Um, the macrophages, which you're seeing with, with the nanoplastics in the placenta, are they, and they're chomping at it. I mean, are they able to break it apart? Are they able to destroy it at all? Or we don't know yet. We don't know. We do isolate yeah. these placental macro. We don't, it's not happening in the, pl- well, yeah. it probably is, but we, in terms of the experiment, we're isolating the placentas and seeing it. So what we're interested in is that longer term, you know, do they just keep it inside them for a long time? and it's affecting them functionally, or do they quickly uh, turn it over? Um, So, you know, ask me in about a year's time, and we might know. But it's interesting because pregnant women do those kinds of processes within these types of cell populations differently as well. So uh, there's some potential concerns. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, a fascinating area, and we will get you back, back on the show in a year's time and hear all about it. We we touched on, we just mentioned about trimesters and I suppose in, in my mind, I feel trimesters are almost just a fairly arbitrary cutoff of, of a few weeks and actually it's a spectrum of pregnancy and it seems strange almost to break them into thirds, but that's how we tend to understand it and especially for our simple, as you say, non, non-maternity medicine minds or mine anyway, it's easier to break it up like that. So what do we know about the effects during the timing of pregnancy or do we not know much about it? There are quite a few studies now. There's some nice animal studies where they can, obviously you can time the exposures during pregnancy. And there are studies that have tried to tease apart, you know, whether a first trimester exposure may, for example, may have more neurodevelopmental impact because of the key, you know, the key stages of brain development in the fetus. Whereas maybe respiratory tract exposures would be later in the pregnancy than the early sort of months after the baby is born. And there's lots of data about that. But the catch is that different different risks are associated with different stages of the pregnancy. So there's no one point in pregnancy that is a better time to be exposed than another because it will just have a different preferential outcome. And that may explain why, again, why we see those commonalities in exposures with different outcomes because the key exposures occurred at different stages in the pregnancy. But yeah, we were trying to get to the point and say, well, if you can try and, you know, do a lot of effort in your house in terms of managing indoor air pollution in the the first half of pregnancy that'd be better but I don't think we can get to that point because it will just change the risk from maybe it's not neurodevelopmental maybe it's respiratory and and maybe it's the difference between 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 the difference between being preterm versus term low birth weight for example so still a bad outcome either way it looks like throughout pregnancy there's going to be risks and maybe for some things slightly higher at different times but overall it's not like, okay, if you can just avoid air pollution for the first trimester, you'll be fine. It's, it's, it's not as simple as that, which, which totally makes sense. Yeah. And I took a bit of time to try and map that out to address that question. You know, if we're going to educate people, get them to change behaviors, you know, try and change, you know, the way they cook, for example, then, you know, can we just do it for a short period? But it's not as simple as that. Which sort of, but yeah, brings us nicely onto this idea of, are, are there any protective factors against pollution? And I'll, I'll put out there one study which I saw recently, which isn't necessarily um, that relevant, but it was just it was a surprising study which we covered in one of our roundups where we looked at the evidence, and it was giving vitamin C supplements in pregnancy to pregnant smokers um, conferred fairly long term benefit to the children as far as lung health. Mm-hmm. So at five year old, five years old, they, they had a better FEV ones if they were given. It's a randomized controlled trial if they're given vitamin C and not. Now. I can see how that won't potentially be relevant to air pollution because that they think the vitamin C works on nicotinic receptors. And as far as we're aware, there isn't a huge amount of nicotine floating in the air. But are, are there similar sort of studies? Are there things looking at this? Is there anything you know of which could be protective? Uh, I think there's a few studies in things, you know, antioxidants in the diet, you know, fish oils, vitamin C would be another one, sort of dietary intake that would create that more antioxidant environment because if we think about the pollutants a little bit like smoking causing oxidative stress in the placenta and if you can offset that by you know upregulating the antioxidants and improving the balance between the the bad oxidative stress and the good antioxidants and that would have some benefit so you would think that you know good diet good a uh, good amount of exercise you know a healthy lifestyle the danger being that you would go for a run in the outdoor air pollution of course but um so a, a healthy diet and you know exercise and just a general good level of health to you know, combat as best as you can. And I think we will see more of these studies emerging, things around the fish oil studies that there have been, um, focusing, I think, on that sort of creating an antioxidant environment to offset that oxidative stress, which 
then has that downstream effect on mitochondrial function and DNA damage and things like that. So managing it up the upstream, hopefully, by limiting the oxidative stress. That's really interesting. I haven't really heard too much about the fish oils. So um, are there studies in, in animal models or this not really related to pregnancy? Um, what, have, yeah. what have they shown? That's a very good point. They're, they're, they are all animal models, and I, I can't recall one that's in pregnancy. Sure. Say yes, they will be in non-pregnant settings. But there's um, general sort of better outcomes as far as oxidative stress when exposed to pollution, that sort of yeah. thing. Interesting. Interesting. And what about things like air purifiers? Um, other BTS... I found this is one of my my favorite questions. I kept asking it to different people, mainly because I was trying to figure out whether I should get an air purifier, which I did end up getting. But um, I it was that sort of way up. Like we 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 know actually they do work as far as reducing say PM two point five. Um, would you ever suggest recommending it to somebody who could afford it and lived in inner city London and was pregnant, or do you think we're not anywhere near doing that sort of thing yet? I think we're probably heading in that direction. Yeah, we have more and more personal monitoring available to us in our homes and and the sort of the natural follow-on from that is then to do something about it beyond the very low cost interventions if you're again if you're in the position to be able to afford it afford to run it I think we will see more of that and we're hoping to develop some simple tools that allow us to actually test these things you know yes my air has changed but has my response to the air changed and you know we don't want to wait out a whole pregnancy and uh you know until the child is seven to see if it's developed asthma or something but can we you know measure that response that someone is making to the the sum of air pollutants in their air and show that by reducing that that we can reduce that response that they're making that inflammatory oxidative stress type response so i think we're heading in that direction of doing studies like that and we've done it in the setting of allergens in the past to try and reduce allergen burdens in the home we've used vacuuming and you reduce moisture in the home we uh, clean the air to get rid of cat dander for example and things like that so we've done these kinds of things in very similar settings for other sort of harmful insults that cause disease or associated with triggering disease so i do think we will head in that direction yeah, that's really interesting. And hopefully we'll get some more sort of data about it. But I know there, are, there have been some studies and they vary a little bit, but it seems to be something which is very interesting for people and we should be looking into it more. Great. I, I'm, I am interested in the, the cooking. It's very difficult to say, to ask a pregnant woman to say, you know, you should try and reduce cooking or would you suggest wear a mask when you're cooking? Do we go to that extreme? I how, what sort of advice can you give them? I think there's quite a bit of advice online about the best way to do this. And, you know, and not just from the, you know, the home appliance companies, but some of the universities have looked at this in great detail. There's some beautiful pictures, I think, of Stanford University. They've got all their equipment in the kitchen, monitoring what's going on with air pollution exposures. So there's key things. Obviously, there's ventilating the room if you can while you're cooking. Um, there's things like if you have a gas hob and you boil your water for your tea on the gas hob, you should get an electric kettle just to minimize that uh, use of the gas hob. If you, most people have a four burner gas hob, if you're going to make sure your fan is working above, make sure your fan vents to the outside and use the back hobs preferentially. I think most of us cook at the front preferentially, but um, use the back hobs because the suction and the air draw is much stronger at the back. So how interesting. Okay. That's useful. You know, anybody can do this. You don't need special equipment, maybe other than the electric kettle, if you're using the gas hob to boil your water, but most of us can make those simple changes. Just make sure the fan filter is clean and is extracting properly vents to the outside and use the back hobs. I didn't know about the back hobs. I did read a study about most people do use the front and everyone has a left or right preference, but the back yeah. hobs are the best in terms of air pollution. No, that's really interesting. And I had no idea. That's actually quite a nice little, um, nice little trick. It's a lot of this is not necessarily about stopping. We can't stop the air pollution and we can't stop cooking. But if our, there are these little factors which can make a difference like that, then, um, you know, the idea is, of course, reducing your exposure over a long period of time will reduce the sort of the worst of bad outcomes. Brilliant. So I, I know you're not, let's say, a physician, but I wonder from a healthcare you know, doctor perspective, we'll, we'll see pregnant women, even if we're not you know, obstetricians and things. What what sort of you've given us some brilliant tips but what would you should we be saying to pregnant women say a pregnant woman who lives in inner city london what sort of the key advice should we be giving them to help them know that they're doing as much as they can to reduce their risk yeah i think the key thing is to educate them about the risk a lot of people won't be aware of this or they will only think about that outdoor environment they'll think once they've shut their front door 
everything's fine, but we've seen lots in the press recently about mold in the home and things like that. So I think as long as we then hand in hand with those simple, cheap, easy to implement solutions that you can do in basically any home, doing those hand in hand, I think is key. So you don't want to just introduce people to the extra risks once they behind their front door. You want to educate them about that, but then give them the tools that they can actually do something about it, even if it's, you know, small steps, like we just said, simple measures that just reduces that burden. And, and they'll also feel more positive and upbeat about it, won't they? And that I'm actually able to do something about it, move the, you know, the, the frying pan to the back hob, maybe get that electric kettle, make sure the windows open, those really simple measures and doing them hand in hand, not talking about one without the other, because we, and otherwise we just, we've, we're we're veering into scaremongering and not actually making people more stressed as well exactly which is which isn't going to help anybody i suppose and i I often worry about this somebody again inner city london is the example we often use just because we know it's you know as far as england it's it's a bad area for pollution um often low socioeconomic class um and I worry that you give them this information and they're like, well, what, what do you want me to do? Yeah. You know, I, I live in a, a two bedroom flat with my entire family. And um, and this way up, I always find difficult between ventilate, but then uh, but then means you're just putting the heating on, which may be something which is also releasing PM 2.5 and um, the indoor and outdoor air pollution conundrum. And do you have any sort of simple advice along those lines of how to weigh that up it's really hard isn't it because you know it also Mm. depends on time of year you wouldn't do it at the moment would you so window and try and ventilate but you may have to compromise in the kitchen for example um and making sure the fan is working in that setting and the fan is vented to the outside maybe the most straightforward solution the other thing is the drying of clothes um you know people may not have a dryer which is clearly the, the driest way to dry your clothes um but trying to think about which room in the house they dry their clothes on and maybe go for a slower drying of their clothes rather than a rapid drying on the radiators, for example, and try and, you know, maybe pick a time of the day that you know, they're able to open a window or something like that. So I think it's it's thinking about that because it is it's really hard. It is really hard to get that advice of ventilating versus heating your home, especially in these winter months and and managing that moisture in your home as well along, you know, trying to manage any leaks that appear any appliances that may be broken and generating water, but also that um, the drying of your clothes and all those other things that are generating moisture as well. And that's that really relates to moulds in the home and and those kinds of things. So, so I was going to ask about the, the moisture, that it's not necessarily that we're breathing in more you know, humid air. It is because of the risk of mould developing and then you've got the fungal spores. Um, a little bit about what is the, the risk of having some mould in the, in the house um obviously if you're getting a, a big immune response to it, it's obvious but is there evidence that a, you know low um a low burden of of mold or of, uh, of allergens in the air does that have detrimental effect to to people to pregnancy uh, I, we don't know very much about it in pregnancy so but again it's going to depend on your status you know if you're an asthmatic for example and or if someone who was allergic to molds or you have some other kind of respiratory disease cystic fibrosis for example it will have a completely different effect to um, most people um so again i think we're you know we're we're at the real beginning of understanding the that relationship without the molds in our homes we've known they're there we know they trigger asthma uh, allergic disease but in terms of these potential programming events like we're thinking about with particulates microplastics we don't know a lot about that at this stage no that's that's fine that's fair enough um, because often it's something which people will, will come up with in respiratory clinics. They say, oh, I've got a bit of mold in the house and and that will be the source of all their problems, which it certainly almost certainly isn't, but but perhaps not. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe actually it's more relevant than we realise. Yeah, and there's more and more interest in that kind of interaction of, you know, if, if I'm exposed to mold, for example, what might that mean in, if I then get exposed to a virus or a bacteria? Sort of maybe the mold isn't causing me a lot of problems, but until I get another exposure... I, it, I, that doesn't manifest. It's only when yeah. you get that additional exposure that you then see that the mold has caused some problems. So, but again, this is from animal models, and so we haven't taken that through to human populations yet. It's a fascinating area, isn't it? And there's so much which is 
watch and wait and we will see and we hopefully in the next few years we will have a bit more of an answer yeah and it comes it, well it's one of the main challenges with air pollution none of us have just an exposure to air pollution we have exposures to molds and bacteria and pollens and we you know there's heat vulnerabilities of course and obesity will have an impact and all of these kinds of things so this is the real challenge we have in that none of us have a we're not little laboratory animals where we can have a single particular exposure we have multiple air pollution exposures in combination with a whole host of other things that have similar effects on our cells and tissues so we, we spoke a bit about what we can say to our patients and a couple of bits of advice. Did you have anywhere in particular where, um, I think you did mention somewhere where patients can can look out for advice about um, how to reduce their indoor air pollution, pollution and things like that? Yeah, there's a nice, uh, so British Lung Foundation as well, so they've changed the name, haven't they? Asthma Plus yes. Lung they are now, is that the Yeah, way? Asthma Lung U- UK, yeah. Um, so they have some simple uh, suggestions there. They particularly focus on that sort of humidity in the home, and other things in the home so that that's one particular site that's particularly handy uh, there's lots of other resources as well various sites so, you know, i can compile a list if that's of help to anybody but it's also relatively straightforward to google and find lots of yeah. things but i would look at the asthma lung site as well that's a great way to place to start thank you is there anything else which you feel that healthcare professionals should be doing um related to this this problem as a whole um, whether it's just what we say to patients or what we'd be doing politically or what, what um, is there anything else we should be doing about this? Yeah, I think, I think it's that information sharing we do with our patients and making sure that we have a consistent story. You know, we're talking about pregnant women, but, you know, we need to think about that when children are coming into clinics, particularly respiratory disease clinics. You know, there's not a lot of information included in the sort of standard literature that we give people relating to air pollution. Um, and I think we need to do a little bit more of that, but again, hand in hand with those simple solutions. So I think just that trying to move us to the sharing of information with the patients that encourages them to engage with, you know, a little bit more thought about how they go about things in their homes. And patient advocates are often the so it can be the most powerful and you get a you know a, a a big group of patients all advocating for um healthier air and um what is it mums mums for lungs mums they these lungs. sorts of ch- yeah. charities yeah. do fantastic work and they um they are gaining support and sort of with that power um and so if you empower people to make changes at home but you'll get some people who then will want to take this forward and it will change how they how they vote, how they look at things and things like that. And that may also change things for the better. I think a lot of the patient advocacy is very focused on that outdoor air environment, though. So we talk, you know, campaigns, Mm. stop people idling cars around schools and, um, you know, managing traffic in you know, particularly dense residential areas and things like that. But I don't think we progress to that in the in the home. And we had a recent uh, I think it was clean air conference. They were talking about, well, how do you engage with people? Because the minute they shut their door, you know, my home is my my kingdom kind of approach. And yeah. So how do you better educate people about the decisions they can make in their homes that can change their home environment relatively easily? So I think that's probably our next step for the patient advocacy bit. It's a big next step. And hopefully educating the doctors listening here, educating, and it will trickle down and we'll all be start be giving, you know, singing along the same lines and giving the same advice, which would be brilliant. Kathy, thank you. I think we've we've covered so much. It's been brilliant. Um, and at the very beginning in our quick fire, you said you were slightly optimistic that we can help us solve this problem, um, improve air quality enough, perhaps, to improve outcomes for pregnant women. And so, with that in mind, I mean, how where does your optimism lie? Where what are going to be the wins over the next few years? And I suppose if you could try and imagine for ten years' time, how how might things be better, you know, different for the better for your patients, for these patients? Well, I think a lot of what, I mean, you've touched on what we'll see a lot of, I think more and more people will engage with, you know, household monitoring, um, you know, have a much better idea for what's going on in the home. You can already see that it's, you know, it's it's creeping into behaviour in health professionals. You talked about your own example. And so that will sort of, you know, then sort of cascade out into the wider environment, I think. And so that will then lead to those, you know, more and more air purifiers in the home. 
And then I think there'll be more and more manufacturers of products that will sort of move from that spray product going back to, you know, I would hope liquid products, solid products. You know, we've seen it in terms of the microplastic in in beauty products and cosmetics, you know, trying to get away from bottles of shampoo to people using solid bars and those kinds of things. And there's more and more people engaged. These things should become cheaper would be what I would hope as well. And therefore more and more people become able to engage. And so that would be my my hope in that direction in that, you know, we start small and the people who can engage do engage and then it sort of cascades from there. So more and more people can engage and the opportunities that you can take to minimize this exposure become easier and cheaper to implement for more and more people and we think about the way we build our houses as well we know there's huge interest in you know amongst architect communities and builders to try and you know change the way we build our homes so that we can sort of mitigate some of this right from the outset so I think we will see more and more of that so now I feel really optimistic but (laughs) (laughs) great that's good lovely you spoke about lots of things and as you say um as you're naming all of these things, like you can you can see our you know, listeners and myself, we can picture you know small but small but sure different areas which are sort of improving, and if they can all continue to do so, then um, hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, as long as we don't make our health inequalities greater in doing that, is the probably the biggest danger of all. And there are some examples where they've uh, greenified communities and they've chosen socially deprived communities, and in doing so. They've made them very attractive properties and then they all get bought out when the opportunity arises. So I think there are some challenges there to kind of get that equity across our populations. But, you know, I was preparing for a lecture on microplastics and they sort of said we first found plastics in the ocean in 1971. So, you know, this is nearly my whole lifetime ago and we've not achieved anything in that time. So I'm kind of that's why I veer towards the six out of ten because there's plenty that can be done i think it's going to take a long time to get to where a lot of people can do it sure but we have people like yourself and we have um, a whole team and of uh, an army of researchers looking into this now which i think there is the interest there's the public interest there's the healthcare interest and there's research interest and the to a certain extent the governmental interest as well so i think there's the generational thing as well isn't yeah. there so the you know the, the those younger than us are uh, already much more minded earlier in their lives to getting that's true Kathy that's wonderful thank you so much for chatting I think we've covered a wealth of information um, ranging from outcomes in pregnancy to outcomes in the children to uh, indoor and outdoor pollution and it's been a um, sort of we've, we've covered tons and it's been fascinating so thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh yeah, engaging our listeners like this. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm finding that I quite enjoy this element of where my research journey has taken me. (laughs) Well, that is it. Now, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, listeners, because I certainly learnt a lot. Um, For one, I feel like I have sort of justified buying a combination air dehumidifier and air purifier. Um, I have started using the fan above the cooker far more than I ever did whenever I'm frying or cooking anything on the hob. And if I am using it, I've now just started using the back burners, like she said. Um, And I feel like I'm sort of protecting myself, which is really interesting. Equally, I actually feel a little bit better equipped to talk to patients, especially pregnant women, about the potential risks of air pollution. So all in all, extremely useful for me, and I hope... I really hope you found it as useful as I did. Now, so you know, we're going to be taking a little break from journal spotting. I know, I know. How are you going to cope? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But um, generally speaking, life is getting in the way of a great podcast. However, we do plan to be back in a few months. We're looking at around six months or so with a revamp style, awesome guests and who the hell knows what. It's going to be great. In the meantime, my wonderful journal junkies, do be careful. And if you can't be careful, have a lot of fun. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and special guest, Professor Kathy Thornton. 
Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, or on Twitter. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, ideas for future episodes, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.